0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. And as has been our custom, we are reading large portions of scripture. And if this is new to you, or if you feel fatigued in any way, feel free to to sit down as we read. But we're going to read the entire chapter, uh, chapter 26 of Genesis. Moses is our author, and he records in verse 1, Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar and when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of, of, of the people might have lain with your wife, and, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land, verse 12, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we so Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there was a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitnah. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rahop Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, fear not. For I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, that is Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ehuzah. His advisor and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace." You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from there, from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug. And he said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is called Beersheba to this day. We'll stop there for just now. This is God's word to us. Please be seated. Now, we are continuing, as we have just read now, in our study of the book of Genesis. And we come now to chapter 26 in this great and glorious narrative of Scripture. If you're new with us this morning, just visiting, we finished last week looking at the birth of Rebecca's two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And we looked at the immediate fallout of their relationship. We finished our time last week considering just how unremarkable both of these boys were. And no matter how hard we tried to justify God's choosing of Jacob... Jacob kept reminding us that it was God's sovereign mercy that caused Jacob's choosing and not Jacob's character or behavior. Both Esau and Jacob were remarkably unremarkable. And now in chapter 26, at least in the first 33 verses, the verses we just read, there is surprisingly no mention of the twin boys. Jacob and Esau don't show up in this text. They show up again in chapter 27. But there is no mention of their brotherhood feuds or birthrights or strifes in this chapter. Instead, Moses takes a break from the Jacob and Esau saga. And he spends virtually all of chapter 26 chronicling the challenges and struggles of Isaac as Isaac now tries to step into the shoes of his father, Abraham. And Isaac assumes now his new official role as patriarch of the family. And what's notable in this chapter is all of the parallels between Isaac and his father, Abraham. In fact, one of the commentators this week said that this is just the story of Abraham Jr. As we read about Isaac. There's so many parallels between Isaac and Abraham, and that is certainly a notable takeaway from this chapter. Let me highlight some of those parallels, some of those similarities between Isaac and his father. First, a famine prompts a journey to a land called Gerar, where a king named Abimelech is ruling. This happens in chapter 26 with Isaac, and this happened with his father Abraham. A famine hits the land. God's people are displaced and they go to a town or a city called Gerar where there's a king named Abimelech. Isaac lies. He lies when he's confronted about Rebekah and he tells the Philistines that, he, that she is his sister and not his wife because he fears his own life, because Rebekah is attractive in appearance and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Abraham did the same thing. Isaac comes into great wealth after a period of time in Gerar, and that wealth prompts strife and tension between Isaac and Abimelech. The same thing happened to Abraham. Isaac ends up separating from Abimelech, and God continues to bless Isaac and the people of God with great wealth. And after that blessing, Isaac builds an altar of praise and thanksgiving to God. The same thing happens to Abraham. Isaac, or Abimelech rather, comes to see that Isaac is truly blessed of God and their relationship is restored with an oath. The same thing happened with Abraham. So my question this morning as we hit this pocket, this chapter that comes right in between this drama between Esau and Jacob and this, these parallels between Abraham and Isaac, my big question is, so what? Who cares? What does it it mean? Why does chapter 26 exist? Well, first, one reason chapter 26 exists is because it is a retelling of history. This really happened, right? So one takeaway is this is a historical narrative, and Moses, the author, is just writing down history, There was a man named Isaac, he was the son of Abraham, and these things happened to Isaac in very similar form and fashion as his father. There was a famine, Isaac lied, God blessed him. It's history, that's one reason chapter 26 exists. I think another reason chapter 26 shows up in the middle of this Jacob and Esau saga perhaps is to prevent us from hoping in Isaac. I mentioned this last week as we've discovered these different characters in the Bible, Jacob and Esau and Noah and Abraham, and how we're just pulling for them to be better than they are because we want to identify with them. We want to see some sort of virtue in Jacob that was the means by which God saw that and said, I'm going to bless you, Jacob, because there's a, there's a kernel of goodness in you. And so we want to identify with the Jacobs and the Isaacs because we want to, we don't want, we want to believe that about ourselves, that our choosing, God's choosing of us was because God saw some sort of potential, some inherent goodness. And yet character after character, we're just disappointed in the remarkable flaws of their hearts. And and we try to identify and then we go, oh, well, I don't want to identify with Jacob. He's the deceiver. He's the one that sells birthrights to hungry people. So maybe chapter 26 exists in part so that we don't try to do that same thing now to Isaac. Well, his boys are messed up. Maybe Isaac is our guy. Maybe Isaac is our hero. And so we are exposed now to Isaac's character. He lies to the Philistine king about his wife. And he, and he gets pushed around. He gets bullied by the Philistines. They become envious of his success and they push him out. So he lies and he's weak. And so we just don't want to identify with Isaac either. And so maybe chapter 26 exists to show us that Isaac is not our guy. He's not our hero. Maybe chapter 26 is simply further evidence of God's faithfulness and patience with his people. I mean, hasn't this been one of the grandest takeaways from the book of Genesis? God is faithful to his promises and he is very patient with his people, right? He is faithful to his promises. He will complete that which he had promised and he is patient with his chosen line. So, maybe chapter 26, certainly it is another example of God keeping his promises no matter what. Isaac lies, God provides. Isaac gets bullied by the Philistines, yet God protects and blesses Isaac. God is faithful and he is patient. Maybe chapter 26 is showing us a biblical theology of hunger and thirst. Did you pick that up in the reading? There's a famine in the land, right? A famine is a shortage of food. It's a shortage of food either from a drought or pestilence or some sort of natural cause. It it causes the food supply to be cut off. And so naturally, Isaac, the patriarch, is panicked and urgently f- trying to find some resource, life-giving resources for his family. And, and so he goes to look for water. So there is this hunger and there is this thirst in Genesis 26. And maybe chapter 26 is this parallel between this physical hunger and thirst that we have, and it relates to our spiritual hunger and thirst where God alone can satisfy. Maybe chapter 26 is a biblical theology on hungering and thirsting after God. Well, I think it's safe to say that chapter 26 exists for all of these reasons and probably many more. This really happened. This is historical narrative. Isaac really isn't our hero. We ought not to identify with him as our source of hope for rescue. God is truly faithful and our bodies do hunger and thirst like our souls hunger and thirst for God. All of these things are true of chapter 26 but here's the challenge. Here's the challenge for my heart and here's the challenge from or for your hearts. There is a challenge when we are reading biblical stories, ancient narratives. To separate ourselves from the story and sort of become spectators in the narrative. Part of that is natural. We're hearing of another person's story, and it's being retold by another person. And put on on top of all of that, it's four thousand years ago. It's so removed from right now. The challenge for us is we can we can be captivated by the entering interesting sort of dynamics of the story. We can even be blown away in our minds because of the intriguing theology that is developed in the narrative. But beloved, we do not read the Bible to simply be spectators. Well, the author of Hebrews says that the word of God is, 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 is sharper than two, and a two-edged sword. It discerns the heart. It changes the reader. So, The question this morning is, does this story have the power to change your life and mine? What is in here that is drawing us in to be changed? How do people change? Another way to say is, what is this ancient text in Genesis 26 teaching the 21st century church today? And that's what I want to drill down on for the next 15 or 20 minutes. And I want to drill down on these applications under these three headings. If you're a note taker, first, what do we do in fear and panic? What do we do in the middle of fear and panic? I think there's application for us in this text. Point two. How do we find the old wells? When there's an urgent desire and need for life giving resources, where do we go? How do we find the old wells? And point three how do we embrace our new humanity, our new Adam, Christ Himself? So this sermon is going to be perhaps a little bit more applicational and exhortive than most sermons that you find at Roots. Fear and panic. Look at verse 1 again. It doesn't take long before the plot is set, the scene is set. Now, there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. So Moses, our author, again, draws out the context in which chapter 26 is written. There was a famine. There is a major food shortage in the land, again, caused by either drought or pestilence or something. And the result is severe hunger. When there's a famine there, it is followed by severe hunger and oftentimes mass casualties. And so as a result of the famine, Isaac, now the new patriarch trying to fill the shoes of his father, Abraham, is now tasked to lead God's people in the middle of panic and fear. There is deep hunger and people are dying. And so fear grips the heart of God's people. And then in verse 6, we learn that Isaac fears again. He's not just fearful of the famine and the consequences of the famine. We learn that he fears the Philistines because of the beauty of Rebekah, same thing as Abraham. And because of his fear of death, he lies. He lies, he fails. However, because of the mercies of God, Abimelech spares his life, and Isaac is allowed to settle in the land. But then more fear sets in. So you have the fear of the famine. Now you have the fear of the king. And now you have fear of the envy that comes from the Philistines. Isaac gets successful, just like his father, and he grows his family, and he grows his herds, and he grows his income. And then the Philistines are envious. And so they drive Isaac out with his family, more fear. And the fear continues and on and on it goes. If you read, there's all these fights about these wells. Isaac digs a well and then the Philistines come and say, that's our well. And then he digs another one and that's our well. There's division, there's strife. There's just anxiety and panic and fear all over chapter 26. And so my question as a point of application is this is, so preachers like myself used to have to work pretty hard before 2020 to talk about what it's like to be in a context of ongoing uncertainty and fear. We used to have to work pretty hard to be like, you know, it's kind of like this that happens in this country, and it gets kind of like this that happened in this area or this time frame in our country. This sort of ongoing uncertainty and fear. Preachers don't have to work very hard anymore to sell this idea that fear and uncertainty can be constant. In this last year and a half, at least for my heart has taken away the padding of the insulation that Western comforts have given us. And what we're learning in Genesis, particularly in this chapter, is that a steady stream of fear and uncertainty has been the norm throughout history. Another way to say it is this. Nothing strange is happening to us since 2020. What's strange is the relative peace that we have had in this country. That's strange. The apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Peter begins his epistle by saying, We are exiles and sojourners in the land, we are behind enemy lines. We ought to be surprised when there are times of peace, not when there are times of fear and anxiety. We are not home. And so... We ought not to think something strange is happening to us. But that's not enough. We can't just acknowledge the normality of fear and anxiety. God's people, we are learning from Genesis, have something to do. We can do something with fear and anxiety beyond just acknowledging its existence. The way to experience peace in a world of fear and anxiety, first, is not to pretend that it isn't there or try to numb that fear with Netflix. Or substance abuse, or news networks, or politics, or video games or work. God's people are not called to numb the fear and anxiety with other resources. Instead, what we've been learning from Genesis is that the way to experience peace in the world in a, in a world full of fear and anxiety is to first acknowledge God's sovereignty over it. And then to acknowledge and celebrate God's presence in it. So we acknowledge that nothing strange is happening to us. 2020 and now 2021 and whatever will come. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But whatever anxiety and fear that will come, nothing strange is happening to us. This has been the norm since the fall in the garden. But we have to acknowledge, as God's people, God's sovereignty over calamity, His sovereignty over fear and anxiety, and we must acknowledge His nearness in fear and anxiety. First, notice, look at your, let your eyes fall down to verse twenty-four and verse twenty-five of Genesis. Moses records in verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him. He appeared to Isaac the same night. So this is right in the middle of Isaac's fear and anxiety. God appears to Isaac and he says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Now stop there for just a moment. God is saying to Isaac in the middle of the night, in the middle of his fear and in his panic, he says, Isaac, I am the God who was with your father, Abraham. Isaac, I am the God who stopped the dagger from plunging into your heart on the top of Moriah. I am the God who provided the substitute ram that wouldn't that would replace you on the altar. I am the covenant keeping God of Israel. I am El Shaddai, Isaac. I'm the sovereign Lord. I'm over this famine. This famine doesn't make me flinch. I'm the God over it. I'm sovereign. But it's not enough that God is sovereign over calamity. The the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is not a deistic God. That that means that that we do not believe in a God who made everything and who is sovereign over it and who sort of wound everything up and stands back and watches it all go to hell. That is not the God of the Bible. He is not just sovereign over calamity and over all the world. He is also sovereign. Kindly near. He says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Notice this next part. And I am with you. Fear not. So, what do we do in our current moment of fear and anxiety? Maybe we're not panicking like we were in March of 2020. We're all running to go get toilet paper and water. I went, I went to go get some water. I'm not going to lie. I stood in that line. Stock market crashed 3,000. I'm thinking, oh boy. We, not, we may not be in full-blown panic, but there does seem to be this coercive drip of fear. And what do we do? We do the same thing. We, we do what Genesis is teaching us to do. First, we acknowledge God's sovereign control over everything over politics, over culture, over job interviews, over hard hearts, over softening hearts, over aching backs, over calamity, over ecosystems, over galaxies, over my life and over your life. We must first, if we're gonna survive the steady stream of fear, we must bend the knee to El Shaddai, the sovereign Lord. We bend the knee as creatures, not creators. Second, we acknowledge his kind nearness in it all. One of the greatest gifts of this last year and a half is the nearness of God to his people. Not that he was more near this last year and a half, but we depended on his nearness more. We went on more walks and we threw our hands up to a a silent sky and we said, oh God, God where are you? And he's burned away the dross of our hearts and he has said, "I'm with you. Fear not." So we acknowledge his sovereignty over all things and we also acknowledge his kind nearness in it, his kind nearest. God is not only sovereign, he's good. There is no ill will in him. There is no ulterior motive in God. Isn't that delightful? Uh, I'm so tired of ulterior motives in my own heart and in other encounters with other human beings. Like, what am I getting right now? We don't have that question with God. He can't help himself but be purely good. And he's near. And he's with us. He's with Isaac here. In Isaac's darkest moment as a new patriarch, in the middle of a famine, in the middle of fearing for his life, in the middle of being pushed out, God says, I'm the God of Abraham. And I'm with you. Fear not. So may the Lord, may the Lord, as we apply this to our moment, may the Lord grant us this understanding when fear and panic set in, that we might build a monument to his sovereign control and his kind nearness. Second point of application. May we go searching for the old wells. May we go searching for the old wells. Wells. Here's what I mean. There was an obvious urgency about Isaac's search for water. Resources have run out. No more food. No more water. People are dying. His people are complaining. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And I'm not just talking about my kids at 10 p.m. that are hungry. They just don't want to go to bed, but like hungry at 8 a.m. because they don't have any food. And so the famine is sweeping the land and finding a source of life was the patriarch's primary concern. Every other concern became secondary because life was at stake. And so because the urgency was so great and the consequences so serious, listen, Isaac doesn't go and try to find new wells. He doesn't go to dig new sources of life, new sources of water. No, he remembered his father's sojourning in the same land and he went to the old wells to draw water. Look at verse 17 and 18. Moses says, so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. As another remarks, notice that Isaac didn't go prospecting for new sources of life. Instead, he stuck to the old path of his father. As we think about that relating to today, it takes a certain kind of humility and a certain kind of urgency To look to the past in order to find solutions for the present. It takes a certain kind of humility and a certain kind of urgency. Here's what I mean our problem today, or one problem that we have, is that we tend to think that we have 21st century troubles. And therefore, we need 21st century solutions. After all, we have private space travel, which none of us will probably be able to afford. We have this thing called Bitcoin, which I still don't understand. And please don't try to explain it to me. I'm going to gloss over. I might go like this, but I do not understand what you're saying. We have nanotechnology. We have all kinds of things that are 21st century innovations. And therefore, the challenges that face us in this age are 21st century challenges. The reality is what we have been learning through Genesis, what we've been learning as we come together, is that our fundamental problems are no different than those of Isaac and Abraham. They're no different than Noah and Abel and Adam and Eve. The presenting symptoms or iterations of our problems may look a little different, but the fundamental issues are the same. And therefore the fundamental remedies or solutions are also the same. What I'm trying to say is we don't need to dig new wells. We don't need to go find more. The urgency is too great. We don't, we can't see as Pastor Alec prayed, one inch in front of our nose. We can't see five minutes after service or what will happen in this moment. The urgency is too great to go prospecting for new life. The wells have already been dug and it takes a certain kind of humility and mixed with a certain kind of urgency to go, what did our fathers do? I don't have time to go prospecting for life. So if you find yourself this morning sojourning in a desert place, desperate for life-giving water, that is you are desperate for rest for your soul, peace with your God, actual joy that transcends, look for the old wells. Let's not for a moment think we've got 21st century problems. That's so prideful. We are not unique. Our problems are as old as Isaac, but the good news is our Savior is just as near. Our problems are as old as Genesis 26, but our Savior is just as near. As Jeremiah the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 6 thus says the Lord stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls what are the ancient paths what do the old wells look like What are they? How can we see their edges as we're in this sojourning land? What what do they look like? I get it, Dylan. I'm with you. I don't want to invent my new source of life. I want to go to the old wells, but I don't know what they look like. The supreme well, the well that supplies the life to all the other wells is the well of Christ himself. Here's what one well looks like. It's old, but there's water here. Confess your sins, which requires honesty. Confess your weaknesses before God and then lay hold of the free gift of forgiveness that comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, that is the deepest well. And that well is full of torrents of living water. It's no surprise that Jesus would go to the one of Jacob's wells in John chapter four and meet with a sinner just like us to say, I know you better than you know yourself. And you're drawing for water that satisfies for five minutes. But I want to tell you about a water that will satisfy for your whole life for eternity. Oh, the deepest well, sojourner, fellow sojourner and exile. Find the well of Christ. Come to him in humility. Don't come to him with your talents and your gifts and your abilities, they are not enough. Come to him with your weakness, and he gives you forgiveness. There's water in that well. There's water in this well. This is where we discover the truths of Christ. This is where we discover the whole wisdom, the whole counsel of God from creation, fall, redemption. When we open our Bibles, it is an old well, but there's water in here. You don't have to go prospecting for new water. It's already here. Joining a local church, becoming committed to, to a local community where you're just coming week in and week out. That is so old, (laughs) so dusty, but there's water there. There's water there. I get questions all the time. Why do you guys do church membership? It's such a new thing. Why do you do church membership? It's such a new thing. It's not a new thing. Turns out not having membership is a new thing. Not having commitment to a local church and just attending is new. But committing and joining and saying, "I'm here, for better, for worse. Help me." That's an old well, and there's water there. Daily prayer and communing with God. Oh, that's so obvious. That's so old. And there's water there. Daily prayer. Not not doesn't need to be structured, refined, religious. Prayer is communing with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, opening our hearts to God. That is an old well, old path, but there's water there. Finally, last well, and then we'll move on to our last point. Sharing a meal with other believers. That's it? Yeah, that's it. So much happens when we break bread together that we don't realize is happening. First off, it's not Del Taco. You're not, it's not fast food. You got to slow down to do it. You also have to be intentional. You have to invite somebody. You have to wait for them. You have to forbear with their weaknesses and idiosyncrasies if they smack or talk with their food in their mouth or they get up or they don't have manners or they don't do things. There's all kinds of things that have to happen in order for that to take place. But do you know how much benefit it is for us to just be together? One thing that happens is we, relationship, relationship, connection. I, I know you now. And this whole bizarre for me or against me Phenomenon that we're in today sort of goes away when you eat together. Oh, you're a human, I'm a human, you need Jesus, I need Jesus. How do we help each other? That's an old well, but there's water there. There's water there. And so may we learn from Isaac in our urgent quest for life and may we look to the old wells. Finally, As we close, may we embrace our new and better Adam, a new humanity. In our text this morning, we're let down by another son of the promise. Man, I don't know about you, and I was talking to Malia about this, and she really helped me sort of craft this final point. When we look at our own family histories... We so desperately want to just highlight the good things. Right? Who the war generals were, <laughs> like who the doctors are, who who the who the moral good not my dad, my grandpa was a pastor. So that he's in my line. So therefore, some of that translated to me. We so desperately want to just sort of edit, sanitize our family histories. And sometimes Maybe it's not that. Maybe your proclivity is to go to the other side and just dash to pieces your family history. No good thing happened. No good wells were dug from my father. And and maybe that's, that's you, and you sort of go on that side of despair, like my family history is just bizarre and weird and achy and horrible. Or you're on the other side, and you're just like, no, we've got war generals and presidents and all of these things. And the reality is were let down by another son of the promise. Isaac fell right into a pattern of his father when he lied about Rebekah, right? That, That generational kind of sin, that doesn't mean he's excused. That doesn't mean Abraham's sin caused Isaac to sin, but there's this generational pattern. He just stepped right into the sins of his father. And so the question is, is that inevitable for us? Like we're just going to step right into the sins of our past. We also notice from the text that it wasn't all bad. Abraham was faithful. He dug good wells in Gerar. It wasn't all bad. He had a faithful legacy. He fell, but in God's kindness, he got back up and he kept appealing. He kept building monuments. So it's not all bad. And that is true of all of our family histories. Of our spiritual heritage and our familiar heritage, it's not all bad, and it's not all good. But what it does keep us doing is it keeps us looking ahead for something that is full, not a mixed bag. Not a father who tripped, but did well, but mm, not a Jacob who's like, oh, not an Isaac who's like, "Uh, oh. we keep looking ahead for a family." someone to belong to, someone to identify with. And as I have thought about this, this is not an incredible insight. There is an insatiable desire in the human heart to belong, to belong, and then to revel in that group that you belong to. To say, this is my group. This is my tribe. And they're good. They're not bad. And so we'll try to find Like wells in the desert, we're trying to find belonging in all kinds of relationships. When we're first dating, we'll only see the good thing in the other person (laughs) because we want to make sure that we're sort of attaching ourselves to a good thing. So we'll we'll try to, to find belonging in all kinds of relationships, in Christian leaders, in Christian movements, in Christian heritages or denominations. This is my denomination. And our denomination has no scars, no sins, except it does. Political rhetoric. I'm not going there full steam, but just hear me out. Political rhetoric, as you know, is increasingly apocalyptic, right? The world is going to end if this candidate gets into office. It doesn't matter what news network you listen to. Put red or blue over that. That is the rhetoric. The world is going to end. And the only way the world doesn't end is if you belong to our team, our tribe, our family. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. And by the way, the only way to belong to our team is if you hate the other one. So, to whom do we belong? Who did Isaac belong to? No, oh, he belonged to his father Abraham, but that's not enough. The most primitive, primitive instinct in all of us is to retreat to what is most familiar but God is calling us deeper. He is not, God is not calling us to familiarity. He's calling us to a new family. God shows up time and time again throughout Genesis to show his people that they belong to him. Remember the promise at the very beginning I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be my tribe. You will root your identity in me, not in anything horizontal. Remember Babel? Did we forget Babel where they tried to build this tower? And what did they try to do? Make a name for themselves. Look at what we can do. Join our family, join our team. And God says, "Enough." He says to Isaac in the fe- in the middle of his fear, "Fear not, Isaac, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and I'm with you. There would come another son of the promise. As you know, after Isaac, a better Isaac. One who is actually trustworthy and true. One who doesn't disappoint. As we've said, the one whom you get closer to, the more brilliant and pure he gets. The one we've been longing for. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he's the only son of the father. And John says he is full of grace and truth. He's the one who, in his moment of panic and fear didn't sell his birthright or sell out his wife. That's a metaphor. Jesus wasn't really married. I'm just saying. He didn't sell out when fear set in. The one who in his moment of fear didn't recoil at the threats of death, but gladly leaned into it with his whole body. And even the author of Hebrews says, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't flinch at death, he leaned into it. This is the one who gladly embraced the sovereignty of God and the nearness of his father in the middle of his calamity. He is the one who not only looked to the old wells, Jesus models fellowship in the church, prayer, scripture reading. Nobody knew scripture, obviously, more than Christ himself. But you know how often he's quoted from those old wells. He not only looked to the old wells for life-giving nourishment, but was himself the great well full of living water. Indeed, as I said, all the other wells of life giving nourishment fed from this main source of life, Christ Himself. Beloved, here's what I'm trying to say. I want us, I want me, I want you, I want us to embrace our new humanity in Christ. He's a new Adam. This is why He became a man. Not just to forgive us of our sins, praise be to God, but also to birth a new humanity, a new creation. One that you would be born into by the Spirit's work of regeneration. There is a promised son of God that is worth identifying fully with. And his name is Jesus. He is the one to whom we belong. Our fathers will disappoint. Our earthly fathers will disappoint. God knows we will disappoint and fall short. Yet the Christian gospel is is that there is one who has not failed. There is one who will never fail. And that same one is at this very moment not ashamed to call us family. Despite our shortcomings and failures. That's glorious. And so, as we close, may we draw from the well that is Christ. May we learn from Genesis 26 and all of our time in Genesis that in our moments of panic and fear, that we would build a monument not to our name, but that we would build a monument to his sovereign nearness, and that we would look to no other tribe for belonging. But we would look to Christ alone, the one who is indeed with us, even to the end of the age. Amen.